Gua sobro. Ai. <laughs> There's not a rule that you have to use the three subs. He's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the third sub podcast presented by Macy Sports. Episode 136, we're back. I'm your co-host Alexander Gungay, Ruzik, joined as always by Samuel Rowan, and we've got a lot to talk about. I guess kind of a theme of F episodes as of late, but uh, had a bit of an international break. Uh, no, it certainly wasn't a break no matter what side of the coin you fell on as the Whitecaps as they tend to do in MLS, played through the break, continues to be one of the most baffling things about MLS in, in general. But we've, we've had this discussion. For now, they went and got a good result in, in MLS play. But otherwise, we got the Canada and their international break to forget over in Vancouver. It was the long-awaited return for the per- prodigal son. And he, he certainly made the, the most of it. With, with his performance but other than that it was pretty much a window to forget for, for Canada as well but we also got World Cup City talk we got some big games ahead for the Caps so again no, it was an international break Sam which I hope you enjoyed first of all but uh, no shortage of, of storylines from everyone involved absolutely I mean hectic last couple of weeks um, I'm feeling the international flavor back in Canada for a little bit, uh, although I'm on the wrong coast. I'm in Atlantic Canada instead of the West Coast. You're from the East Coast, <laughs> technically, even though it's not called that. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, that that's certainly different. And man, I mean, I guess the thing that stands out to me, we're obviously going to talk Whitecaps. This is a Whitecaps podcast first and foremost, but thinking back now, doing the, doing the podcast, Alex, that two, three hours where we learned that there was a good chance the Canada match was going to get uh, canceled. That was one of the most hectic, just kind of stressful, chaotic moments I've had checking my phone, checking my phone, checking my phone. I don't know if part of me was very excited by it. Like it was fun. And part of me was just really stressed out. Like because I was in the UK at the time, stuff was still coming in at, you know, midnight, 1am my time is like, I couldn't go to sleep because I was, it's just not the kind of news story you wanted for um, a Canada soccer team that all of a sudden like has a national spotlight. I think I was disappointed that a lot of people's introduction to the Canadian men's national team that we've covered for such a long time that, you know, talking about when they were playing at IMG Academy and no one was paying attention. Now, all of a sudden, there's all this national press, these these non-sports media outlets um, covering the team, and you get this negative, divisive storyline. I think that was, that was disappointing because I want it to be all about the football. And unfortunately, I mean, the second match of this window they played kind of turned into the same thing where it wasn't really about the football. It was a, a shambolic pitch. So overall, that Canadian window, a little bit disappointing just because I would like to see the focus be more on field performances and less all the other stuff. But we will dive into that 
in terms of the white caps, I mean, yeah, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Take care of business in greasy fashion at home. Get pummeled on the road. It kind of seems like a pattern at this point. The inability to stay healthy. And, and yeah, playing through the international break. They weren't missing many players, but missing someone like Luis Cavallini certainly hurt. So we're going to dive into all that. Uh, my allergies are bucking their heads. So if, if I sound a little weird, a little nasally, you're just going to have to bear with me. But uh, looking forward to uh, getting back into it. And then great to be on the pod as always. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, the, the cardiac caps, I guess, exist for a reason because it's keep it close enough to keep you on your toes. It's, oh, you drop down to last, people start giving up on the white caps, and then they get right on the playoff line. It's okay. The season's rescued. You beat RSL one point off the line, and then you just go get shellacked by Seattle, who, again, I'm pretty sure they haven't won there in over five or six years, and I'm convinced, but based on how not close it is nearly every time, except last year in the 2-2, how not close it is that I'm convinced that by the time I'm old enough to have children, maybe my children will be lucky enough to see Whitecaps win away in Seattle, let alone win at home against Seattle. That's a whole other story. But I think the Whitecaps, if I'm not mistaken, do have a chance to do that later this year. That would be nice to, to see them finally do that. But uh, that's the Whitecaps for you. I mean, we've the Whitecaps, we know so much and so little, really, is how I'd sum it up, Sam. We can look at a run of results. We know what to expect. We have an idea of what the lineup is. We have an idea who the key performers are. We have an idea of whereabouts this team is at, you know, middling MLS team, maybe a team with potential for more. There's so many questions to be asked. I mean, you say you know what the best lineup is, but do we know what the best lineup is? Who's the starting goalkeeper? Where, you know, how do you fit in both Lucas Cavallini and Brian White? I mean, Cavallini, again, his absence was felt for two games. Imagine saying that last year. Uh, completely different story. And that's just sums it up. Uh, you add in the new additions, Andreas Kubas, fantastic to have him in the fold, you know, made a decent little introduction to, of himself to, to MLS play the other night already, which is wild to think two training sessions and thrown into the fire. Kyle Alexandre back, lots of good news, lots of, you know, positives, but also just so much unknown, despite all that we know about the Whitecaps. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. And the the overwhelming feeling I get the more and more this Whitecap season goes on is that, you know, even with the additions, Kubas, even if you consider Ryan Gold, who only came halfway through last year, Kyle Alexandre, um, these are all great ads, but really all they've done for the Whitecaps is you're, you're keeping pace with the rest of MLS. You're not taking major steps forward because I think these last two matches put it perfectly. This is a fringe playoff team and depending on fitness, depending on form, uh, depending on opposition, the results can go either way. You know, they can get blown out. They can play you know, relatively successful football against the team above the playoff line. It just kind of depends from match to match. But the idea that they've, uh, you know, you're going to add these couple guys and you're all of a sudden going to vault yourself to third, fourth in the West perennial playoff contenders would be to, to kid yourself. So it's an inconsistently consistent Whitecaps team where, uh, you know, they're going to like, like most teams in MLS in this, pretty compact and competitive Western conference. They're going to take care of things at home and they're going to struggle to find points on the road. And I, unfortunately it feels like 
the Whitecaps right now, they're at the bottom end of that middle tier of teams. Um, you know, maybe when Kayo, Kubas, Gauld uh, can all get fit, uh, can all play consistent minutes together, perhaps that change changes somewhat. But the problem is, I think you're going to be late August by the time something like that really comes together in full. And at that question, you wonder if it's too late for everything to come together in this season. Uh, something we talked about pre-show, which I think is important is, you know, hey, if this season isn't going to be a, a dream one in MLS, maybe the Canadian championship is where you put your focus. And that's a, a legacy you can leave from this year, even if it's not a, a perfect league campaign. Well, I think it's a good area where you brought us. We'll most definitely get to those existential questions about the Canadian championship. One that looms, especially like a month ago, you looked at the battle, the matchup they had, and you're like, okay, this could be a bit of an apple peel or a banana peel. Or I don't know where I got apple peel from. That's an interesting concept I've just invented. But now all of a sudden it's like, you have to win that Canadian championship game for reasons that we'll, we'll dive into in a bit. But in terms of MLS, that's, you know, that's the thing with the Whitecaps. I, you look at their home record now this year. They haven't been as good at home as they were last year. I think of that Portland game was a game that they probably don't lose last year. I look at that New York City draw. I'm sure they find a way to win that last year, that San Jose draw as well. They're still a top 10 in MLS and home record, and they have a game in hand on, on most teams around them. Uh, like They're a very good team at home for whatever reason. It's not pretty. It's not you know, beautiful, but for whatever reason, it's efficient, it's late goals, it's grind out results and get the job done, which ironically is probably how they should play on the road, yet for, for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. And that kind of leads us to the first point because we Alex, we, we I just want to say that was absolutely perfect. They play prototypical, like <laughs> a, the way an elite team would play road football is how the White Cavs <laughs> play at home. That I couldn't, I could not have put it any better myself. Which is funny because you win at home. No one cares how you do it. So it's not a bad thing. It's just ironic that they play. They have the blueprint just staring them at the faces in terms of how do you play on the road? They do it every, you know, every time they take the pitch at BC Place, yet they, they can't do it on the road. And I just that kind of just leads us to the question. I mean, we'll, we'll put it out there and kind of stray from it. Can the Whitecaps take points on the road? They have that win against SKC, yes, but it was a bad injured not you know a struggling skc team for the most part anytime they've played any decent team not only is it losses it's heavy losses it's three nils it's four nils it's three ones it's like it's one thing to go out and lose one nothing to seattle sounders i think if that happens no team's going to be mad at you for losing to the current champions league north american champions league title holders like that's not a bad result but to go out and lose four nil on a game where Seattle are missing half of their, you know, half their regular stars. You got guys who are playing with the U S et cetera, like that, that is, is far less than, than ideal. And it really leads you to the question is like, a, what the heck is going on on the road? That's just not clicking. And B, do you think, is there any sort of path to turn around? Because to be honest, it looks bleak in terms of their road record. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I have two things, I guess, immediately that come to mind when we talk about getting better road performances, right? So first, I, I think one guy in particular, Ryan Galt, that the one player the Whitecaps have that can really be a game breaker, a game changer. If you get him in top form, he's not been either fit or just kind of feeling it all year long. 
if he's able to refine that, stay healthy, I, I think you have a player that you can bunker in defensively and then maybe rely on a moment of brilliance from him to break things open, get you some points on the road. So that's that's one thing that the Whitecaps can, can look for, maybe be hopeful for going forwards. And then the other thing is, do they have to re-examine once again, version two, the three at the back system, maybe not at home, but on the road, um, especially if they're going to struggle for, um, you know, keeping all the guys healthy. If, if Eric Godoy can't go every week, um, I, I think they might have to reconsider that defensive structure. It just feels like the three at the back against really good teams uh, doesn't, doesn't work, especially, you know, if you're going to have Jake Nerwinski in there, maybe Eric Godoy is not as fleet of foot as he once was. Ranko had an off game against Seattle. So I think those are the two things you have to consider, um, you know, maybe a change in de- approach defensively on the road, and then just cross your fingers and hope that Ryan Gold can be that game changing player. Cause that's, that's kind of what you need on the road in MLS, someone who can, uh, you can sit for 60 minutes and absorb pressure and then get something on the counter. And that does feel like just talking about Seattle more generally, it, it felt like Vanny Sartini went in with the, uh, we're going to, we're going to take this to the 65 minute mark and make them uncomfortable sort of game plan. And then when you could see the penalty in the first five minutes that goes out the window and it felt like they didn't have a plan B the walls started closing in really, really quickly, and they didn't have any answers for how to get out of it. And Ryan Gold wasn't at his best. In fact, I, I kind of thought he was, you know, one of the the weaker performers for the Whitecaps, certainly in relative to expectation. And uh, yeah, you you have to hope that someone like that can take the team by the horns and create something. And I mean, another guy who can be that impact player, which again, hilarious because we weren't talking about it this way last year, but. Lucas Cavallini sorely missed someone who can just create chaos. Be like, again, you know, one of your impact designated players, someone who could be like, no, this is not how it's going to end. We're going to find a way to get a goal. So yeah, I think defensive structure, couple impact players. That's, that's the only way that the white caps can change what's going on in the road. And uh, you know, I don't think either of those can a hundred percent be relied upon, but to me, that feels like the pathway to, get something on the road for me it's not only that i guess for it it kind of originates with an idea that for whatever reason on the road they're just also not hard to play against i don't know if it's just because the way their system is aligned like you mentioned the back three it's a good point but I, i don't know what it is in terms of is it you know is it almost like borderline ego in sense of the white caps where they're like okay we're gonna keep our style no matter where we go but when you're on the road that style doesn't work like, it just feels like it, it, like, it's hard to say it's the system because when they play the same system at home and they're hard to play against, but they, they go on the road and they're just permissible, they're soft, like, they, they get played through, they're, they're defensively open. It makes you wonder, like, is it almost a mentality thing? Is it a matter of are they not approaching games the right way on the road? Because I think at this point for the Whitecaps, you, you, you consider anything. Like, I admire the desire to want to go on the play on the road and play beautiful soccer. Like, it's a great idea. The reality is across the top of the world's game. There's not many teams who can do that. Heck, we just saw, as we'll touch upon, we saw the Canadian men's national team, like filled with guys like Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, all these guys. They went to Honduras. They're playing on a, you know, the, the mud bath pitch. They tried to play their game. They got burnt. Like, that's just the reality of 
often places when you're going away from home. Heck, Liverpool will go to Burnley sometimes. And, it, you know, on some days they'll win 4 0, but it's not, it's, some days they'll be a tough 1 0, 0 0. Like it's not easy to go away from home anywhere. So you do wonder, maybe it's just the mentality. Maybe it's just be, not being so insistent on playing a certain way. Because it's MLS, you have to adjust, you have to play a certain way. You know, you're playing a Seattle team that loves, you know, to expose the white caps in transition, loves to expose the white caps. Like I think of that, those games where under Mark DeSantos, where Seattle would always just rack up 35% of possession and batter the white caps because they just let the white caps play into their hands and, and then destroy them. You know, it, maybe it's as simple as just adjusting your system based on who you're playing against or what field you're on or just something to tr- kind of trigger the mentality. Cause that for me was the biggest thing watching the Seattle game. Like before, if you're going to use an example, say when Carl Robinson was here for all the faults that Carl Robinson had as a head coach, we could certainly go into them. One thing that the white caps were is they were not fun to play against on the road because you know, they'd go into someone's stadium. They would be working hard. They'd be tough to break down. They'd be solid and they'd at least make games, you know, and that's the thing with the, the the white caps right now. It'd be one thing again if it was one nils, if it was two one ones, close games all the time, then I'd have no problem with it. You know, then you could be like, okay, Vanny Sartini's brave, and it's at least leading to some sort of results. But when you look at the road games, you got four nil against Seattle. You got you know the two one against Charlotte, but it should have been more. You got three nil Austin, two one Montreal, where Montreal probably should have done more. Three one LAFC, uh, a two one Dynamo. Uh, that one was probably, you know, one of the rare instances where they didn't deserve to get blown out. And then you got four nil Columbus. Like those are not an exactly close set of a road fixtures for uh, for the Whitecaps. And for me, that's the biggest thing. It comes down to that that idea of not being hard to play against. Yeah, I, I think that that's maybe a, a different way of kind of uh, framing my three versus four at the back argument. Like, I, I think you're totally right that it is a mentality thing. Like, oh, no matter what you, you know, they could have had six at the back, two at the back. It wouldn't have mattered. They were so passive against Seattle, like so timid in their approach defensively that it wasn't going to matter. But I think that's, it just seems like the way they go in that three at the back system on the road has sort of, it has those passive cautious connotations. So my feeling would be, you know, you go to your, um, your Burnley 442 and you just really <laughs> you buy into this new, you know, attitude, like a flow young Verth, honestly, on the ball. If you don't see an option you like, just hoof it 50 yards downfield, like kick it, kick it to Stephen Fry and, and, and let him redistribute it, you know, but they don't, they don't have that mentality right now. I think they're caught halfway in between. They have this identity at home where they're, they don't control all the ball, but they're ready to pounce with a plan on the counter attack. They're organized. I'd they're say. ready to do something in possession. Then on the road, they're trying to have that same mentality. They're trying to play the exact same way, but they don't have that confidence that they have at home to, you know, spring to attack on the counter. So they get caught halfway in between playing passive and cautious and halfway in between launching that counter. And then it's just the worst of both worlds where they get caught out. They, they lose the ball, they get broken down and it's in the back of the net. So I think if you're Vanny, you maybe almost want to, you know, okay, have a, 
an identity that you play, but have a road identity and have a home identity. Keep those distinct because uh, don't mess with your home identity if it's working. But, uh, you know, the results on the road, really the only the only positive coming against an SKC team that's been just incredibly poor this year. So I don't think you can put a ton of stock in that. It might be time to just wipe the road slate clean and, and try something different. So, yeah, I think we're, we're both. We're both in agreement there from from two slightly different perspectives. I'd say that's a great way of putting it. I mean, it's something like when's the last time the White Cavs won a midfield battle away from home? So why haven't they? Why haven't we seen like a four three three or a four five one? And I'm saying that because yes, they have played a three five two away from home, but what happens? You get two strikers who are just standing there with their arms crossed because the ball's not getting up to them in the first place. So what's stopping you from putting nine players in the midfield and in the back four to, to try and progress the ball up the, the pitch? So I think the 100% correct, Sam, in the sense that it is a mix of tactics, a mix of mentality, it's a mix of just, you know, coming together and figuring out whatever, uh, you know, it's a mix of a lot of things in terms of the, the road form. But uh I think that pretty much sums up uh, our first two talking points pretty well on here. To, to return to, to the, the game against Seattle, Andres Kubas makes his debut. That's a very bright point for, for him. I mean, from the plane, he trains in Vancouver two days. He's with the team, goes to Seattle, plays almost 30 minutes. Both not ideal, both ideal, I guess, depending on your perspective, because I'm sure you didn't want him to go on his first you know, time on the road and throw him in for, for such a foray. I, I imagine in Vandy's head, it was a 1-0 victory for the Whitecaps. Kubas plays five minutes, you're happy. Maybe you don't want him to play 30 minutes in his first game with his uh, new club, but he's, he's now, you can officially say he's integrated in the squad in some form, and we're going to see a lot more of him going forward. So there's no more visa limbo. There's no more, is it this, is it that? Ditto with Kyle Alexandre, second back-to-back perform or time he's appeared. Plus, he's getting regular minutes with the Whitecaps too. I think we can say, uh, knock on what his injury troubles look to finally be behind him for now. He's been looking great, at least fitness-wise. We could talk about maybe what we've seen from him in, in terms of his actual role. I mean, first let's let's talk about those two because we talked about the midfield and the Whitecaps. What's it been like? To, what were your initial thoughts first, Sam, for you on Kubas? And what's it like to, been like to see Kayo back in the fold? I, I guess I'm going to be somewhat uninteresting here because I, I don't want to be that guy that puts a bunch of stock in 30, 35 minutes of what was essentially, essentially meaningless <laughs> football at the end of that Seattle match, right? Like, I don't want to be reading into every single touch Kubas had on the ball every single time, you know, Kyle Alexandre pressed. Uh, that being said, I think that, you know, they, they did make some formation changes. You had Kubas, Alexandre, and Gall together in the midfield at times there when they were all on the pitch. And those were the first times in a while on the road where you're kind of like, oh, okay, there, there might be something there. You know, you're stretching it a bit. I mean, I still, as I said, I don't think Gall had a great match. Kubas looked looked physically fit. I mean, he just came from international duty, so that's no surprise. The the chemistry, the the understanding of where his teammates were, I mean, that's going to take a little bit of time to come together. But uh, you know, in comparison to Leo Wusu, who we who we can talk about, just his his composure, his confidence in the environment, uh, a lot higher. Uh, and you know, unfortunately, that's just Leo's kind of at a low point right now in that respect. And obviously, 
Uh, Cubas is a guy that's, you know, well-regarded and has a, you know, you're always coming off national team duty. I think you have a lot of, puts a little pep in your step. And then Kayo, the, the tireless work rate, uh, the kind of like Seb Burhalter, just the, the ambition, both offensively and defensively, um, you know, always trying to make the A plus play. Sometimes it can bite them, but uh, I really, really like that. And uh, I think that, you know, for, for FC Dallas on the weekend, you, you selfishly want to see as much of those two as you can. Maybe that's uh, the Mark DeSanto special, which is sort of start a guy and take him off at the 65th minute mark. You know, but but I think that's what the Whitecaps they the Whitecaps need to get off to a good start on the road in Dallas. So uh, I don't want to see these guys waiting until you know I don't want Leo Usu starting again and then bringing one of these guys on at the 45 minute mark because that doesn't really help anyone. Like the Whitecaps are already going to be down a goal, and, and then you're bringing Kyle or Cubas on into a difficult situation. I'd rather have them start strong and have to use their depth late in the match. Uh, but we're obviously going to talk about, you know, York, how do you play that situation? Uh, so yeah, I don't have a ton of like Uber specific thoughts. Like I'm not going to rag on Kubas for his turnover. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get into anything too nuanced like his that. yellow card. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm, Welcome we're, nonetheless. we're not doing that, but uh, I thought overall they looked the fact that they both looked physically fit. There were some bright spots with Gauls. Uh, I just want to see more at this point. Hey, as long as the yellow card doesn't turn into a Daniel Bekel in his first season situation where he picked up a yellow you card. You gotta watch out for that. <laughs> yeah, because all of a sudden you're at four and you're like, wait, what the heck happened? Like you, you know, you can use the whole adapting to MLS speed and referees, but uh, I'll never forget Bekel finally getting involved with the caps, and then within like 10 games, he was on suspension watch or was suspended. Uh, but in terms of Kubas, I think, yeah, exactly. It's a three-nil game, not exactly a game to bring in a defensive midfielder. But I think it was just good to see him comfortable on the ball, getting his touches, showing something. And I mean, it's t- kind of telling that Owusu in 45 minutes in the field, 12 for 12 passing, he completed all his passes. Uh, but, you know, still Kubas in 29 minutes had 20, uh, I think, t- attempted 23 passes in just that short amount of time. It, it's, it's a bright sign to see, you know, him wanting to be on the ball, that desire to, to play. So I think it's going to be good just to, to get Kubas integrated as we know with the white caps, like they need some sort of physical body in midfield to, to kind of put things to, together and not let them be so permissive and l- just take pressure off the back three and, and whatnot, but also be someone who's not an anchor because it just feels like every time they've been plugging someone in that role, they kind of do this, they kind of do that. And I mean, you had someone in Bikel, but then he didn't fit the system. And by the time you switch to a system that fits a player like Bikel, Bikel's, you know, enjoying life in, in Italy. He's eating his, uh, he's eating his whatever, you know, his pizzas, his pastas, his all that, all that good stuff. But uh, with, <laughs> I know that was terrible. For some reason, I couldn't, couldn't remember the the term that I wanted to say. I'll, I'll get back to it. Um, <laughs> but in terms of Kubas, I think it's going to be good for him to get an integrated into the system for those reasons. So, hey, a bright thirty minutes is a bright thirty minutes. I'm not going to, yeah, like you mentioned, Sam, it's hard to sit there and be like, that was that yellow card, like he's a liability or all oh, these passes, like we've got, you know, the we're watching the next Pirlo in Vancouver. Like there's really not much to take away from that, but things are trending in the right direction. Kyle, on the other hand, because for me, the, the Seattle game again was more of just 
you know, didn't mean as much for me, I think, to the RSL game. And it was different because I was in the stadium for the RSL game. I wish I was in the stadium for Seattle, but circumstances obviously didn't permit that. It was fun to watch him in the RSL game. Like, because you notice the off the ball movement, you're like, oh, Kyo's on the field. Like, you kind of notice that. Like, there's sometimes with Whitecaps midfielders, you kind of almost have to look for them. You're like, okay, is, is this guy on the field right now? Maybe it was because I was looking for Kyle because I missed watching him play, but he, he just catches the eye. Like he's just a constant blur of movement. He's always just, you know, chasing the ball. He's working hard. He's just always in a good like posture. He's on his toes. Like he's not someone who's just like walking around sauntering, uh, you know, and he just, he ticks kind of all the boxes in the sense that he's got the hard work. He's got the quote unquote intangibles, but he's also just like you mentioned, he, he goes for the, the big play. He progresses the ball. He does a lot of the fancy, the analytical, the, the good stuff that you want to see from a midfielder. Uh, so for me with Kyle, I've been more impressed with him just because I've seen more with him. We knew what to expect from Kyle. And I think it, it's time. He's played four games. I think it is now between his appearance, uh, you know, his two appearances back with the Caps and then his two appearances with the second team. He's gone, at, you know, he's up to 45, 60 minutes now. I think is the most he's played, which is he's getting there. Give him a good 60 against Dallas because I feel like when he's going to be on the field, it's going to allow the, the Whitecaps to push the ball in the right direction and something they frankly haven't done enough of. Absolutely. Uh, we, we had it next on the queue or no, sorry, it was down the queue, but I just wanted to bring it up because I, I feel like we should touch on this just a little bit more. I mean, we sprinkled in some, some Leo Wusu talk, but I just want to bring it up as a, as a question now, like what happens to, Leonard Wusu from this point onwards, because you've Kyo and Kubas are back. Um, you're, you're hoping Ryan Gold's going to be fully fit. This was sort of Leo's opportunity to, to take something and run with it and maybe cement himself as, at least as a role player within this squad. But I do wonder now, this is, I think three matches in a row, he's been subbed off at the 45 minute mark. And, you know, the, the, the low touches, the low pass involvement um, is not an anomaly. Really, all three of those starts, it's been the same thing. And, and I just wonder ultimately if, uh, you know, it, it's not going to work out in Vancouver the way maybe it looked like it was going to and him and Tybert were running things at the end of the last year or, or at least oh, getting, the, getting the job done, relatively speaking. So, Alex, I know he's been a, a favorite son of yours, so to speak. So I, I'm curious for kind of where you... We, you know, we don't need to talk more about his his current play, but just where that leaves him going forwards with the, with the club. Well, what I'd openly ponder is, is he is much a victim of the Whitecaps road struggles? Because it feels like every yeah. time I sure. watch a Wusu at home and they're kind of in their system and they're playing the way he wants to play. And I guess you could extend that to last year where I personally, if you think back to his best games, they're all at home. For whatever reason, he just benefits from the white cap system at home, whereas on the road, I think that's what, that's three straight road games where he's been yanked at halftime. Charlotte, even in the win against Kansas, as well as the, the this loss against Seattle, whereas, you know, his, the last home game, he went 75 against RSL. He came off the bench against Dallas because he was just off the injury and he looked fantastic. So for, for a Wusu, I do, I, I, I'm not going to give up on him quite yet because I think that potential is there. And I think he's kind of a perfect embodiment of what we mentioned about the Whitecaps road struggles because it feels like a Wusu, at least on the road and maybe in general, he doesn't seek out the play. We were kind of talking about it, how a Wusu really in the Seattle game, 
he let the play come to him. I mean, just 12 passes completed for a midfielder of his caliber. That's not usual. Usually when he's on his game, he's demanding the ball, he's running, he's getting it, he's playing it forward. To only make 12 passes, yes, you could theoretically say that, oh, that's on his teammates for not giving him the ball. He has to go out and seek the ball. It's not like the Whitecaps were going up against the usual Jao Paulo, Christian Roldan, et cetera. Like they're going up. Obed Vargas is very good, but he's just a 16-year-old kid and it was a double pivot. Uh, you know, it's not like the Whitecaps were playing some, you know, the the, the usual suspects in midfield. Owusu in a, in, a, in a situation like that has to be seeking out the play. But I think that just sums up his last three road games. Like for whatever reason on the road, he's just passive. Uh, he's not, you know, he's working hard defensively. He'll always give you that. He's not necessarily as good defensively as some might think. We've always said that he's not a number six. Uh, he can, he works hard and will cover ground. And that's why I am intrigued by, okay, what could he do when you have a Kayo doing all the running? What do you do when you have a Kubas doing the actual defending alongside him in a midfield trio, for example? I think that could be fun to watch, but I think this, this last road game, it's, it really shows that for, for, I don't know if it's instructions, I don't know if it's just a Wusu's mentality, but when you're playing that sort of style of game in a midfield away from home, it just kind of hurts your team. And then the, the, the recent results bar the SKC one kind of reflect that. It's actually a good, it's a good point of yours about the, the road versus home performances. Cause really the, the one kind of decent performance that stood out recently was, you know, he was okay against RSL. Like it didn't, it didn't look as bad as those three, um, those three road 45 minute stints. So and I think he was really good against Dallas. I'll point yeah. out it too. So which obviously we're well. going to talk a little bit about Dallas. Um, so maybe there's something there, but albeit this is on the road. Yeah. So I think for Leo, it's just really a, obviously the ability is there. It's a confidence thing. And it feels like on the road again, when the Whitecaps don't have this clear identity, they don't really know if they want to be aggressive and assertive on the counter and you just kind of bunker in defensively. And Leo's emblematic of that. He's just unsure if he should really get on the ball. Should I go for a dribble? Should I just make a cautious pass? Uh, it feels like that indecision is just, yeah, well presented in the way he's been playing. So, I, yeah, I just wonder if it's a fit tactically with Vanny. Vanny almost more so than Mark Dos Santos. It's like you either fit the the things he wants or you don't. And uh you know, we, we've seen that with certain players and let's, let's dive right into it. I mean, next on the list is um, what do you do with Christian Dahomey? Um, and, and I think off of that, it's not on our notes, Alex, but I want, I want to ask you too. I, I mean, I know the match in Seattle was a disaster in, in a lot of respects, but also what do you do with David Caicedo? Because playing him as a second striker, I, I don't think that works. So um you know, does Dahomey go there? Does Dahomey go back to wing back? Do we see that again as he's getting back to fitness? I think the two, the two Colombians who were key players for this team last year and had more success, I think, overall under certainly Dahomey under Mark DeSantos. Um, Debra Caicedo seems to be one of Vanny Sartini's favorite players. Like he always, always finds his way into the team sheet. And to be fair, Debra's, Debra's been good so far this year, but, uh, yeah, I'm curious for your thoughts on where both those guys fit in, uh, especially some of the things we've been talking about, road versus home mentality, uh, ways the Whitecaps can grind out some more points. Yeah, Daber for me is the tough one because, again, I, for me, he's a winger. Like he's, 
he's just he hasn't shown to be you know in the in the central role he doesn't necessarily come all together for him but he's definitely not a wing back he's he's not unlike Dahomey doesn't maybe have the defensive awareness for me he's a winger and because of that it just it's so hard to see him shoehorn in this role especially because the white caps I mean they haven't had a chance to see it because for whatever reason it's like a curse like as long as they're together on the white caps feels like Brian White and Lucas Cavalini will never get more than one or two games in a row together because one will get injured or one will go on international duty or this or that but once the, once they're both back, which should be for this weekend, like surely you imagine it's White and Cavallini time if you stick with the front two, right? Well, that kind of leaves Caicedo as the man out. And that's kind of what kind of leaves me where it was a few weeks ago with him. For me, it hasn't changed much in the sense that I I see what Vanny Sartini sees in Diver Caicedo. We know what he can bring. Uh, maybe the end product isn't always there. He's a young winger. That's normal in that case. But it just feels for the system. There's nothing. With Dahomey, on the other hand, that's the more intriguing one because he did show flashes as a wingback last year. He's shown under Mark DeSantis that he can play as a second striker role. Yeah. He hasn't really, you know, maybe he hasn't played enough second striker. Maybe it's time to if you're going to stick with Diver Caicedo, give Christian Dahomey that role, if anything, because we haven't seen it. And I think it would be interesting to, to kind of, because even when Dahomey played up front this year, he was really wide. Like he was never one who was like uh, last year when it was, I think, Cavallini and Dahomey to start the season for the Whitecaps in the 4-4-2. Dahomey was playing like a proper central striker and it kind of gave the Whitecaps a bit of a different look, the way he was stretching out defenses and, and, and allowing space for Lucas Cavallini. Maybe once Cavallini's back, and you know how Cavallini is, he loves to drop deep, he loves to get involved. Maybe having a guy like Dahomey stretch the field for him up front is the kind of way to get even more out of Cavallini and free things up for him in, the, in those pockets that uh, that like to be he likes to occupy. So if I'm looking at the two Colombians, if you want to get the most out of both of them, let's be honest, you, you, you switch to a 4-3-3, you get that three-man midfield, you plunk either one of them or both of them on either side of a Cavallini or a White. But assuming you stick with the current formation, it's looking more and more, you know, increasingly clear that Caicedo, if he's going to have to find his top form, it's going to have to be in that super sub role he, he occupied to end last season. And then in terms of Dahomey, I'd say you give him a shot at striker. But if not, it feels like from these last few games that just the wing back, it isn't working from the same way it did last year. I don't know if that's tweaks from Benny Sartini, if that's just him, maybe not liking the position as much or just not suiting him as much but it just feels like the wing back one for now it's just it, it the ship has sailed yeah i mean i've been i've been riding all year for dahomey at at false nine second striker uh i, I think it's been I, obviously dahomey i think's got some some off-field stuff where he's been separated from his family again and then just struggling to stay consistent in consistent form then he's had some injuries so uh, I feel like there's a lot more we can see from him, but also something that would make a big difference is some positional consistency. And also, I think he's another guy, Alex, to what we, I tried to bring up earlier, this idea of, okay, if you're going to go in and sort of smash and grab on the road and grab some points, Dahomey can be a game-changing player. Like he has that ability to, we've seen, you know, one goal, one assist, four key pass kind of performances from Dahomey in an advanced role, either as a winger or as a second striker. So I think by bringing him back into the fold up front, you, you add another potential game changer, someone who can uh, take a game where you go, Oh, well, the white caps weren't great, but Dahomey had a couple really brilliant moments in that 
that took them over the top. So uh, even if it's not match to match, I think that's something they have to explore. And maybe that's part of the part of the road tweak, right? Like maybe you can get away with Daber up front if you're really confident in what you're doing at home, or or maybe you, you get a little more experimental and you have Brian White and Lucas Cavallini together up front at home. But I think on the on the road, you just need game changers out there, hoof the ball up to them, see if they can create a play. And and the thing is, if you had, you know, you have a Ryan Gold, Lucas Cavallini, and Christian Dahomey up front, all three of those guys can kind of do not everything, but they're they're very multidisciplined. Like they can all hold the ball up. They're they're all willing defenders. Um, they're all good passers. You know, Ryan Gold even, you know, has shown his ability heading the ball. Like you have a really versatile front three. So I think Daho is a key part of um, if, if the Caps are going to have a road resurgence, eke out some more points. I, I, they have to look at that, I think. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, what's stopping? We talked earlier of the white caps on the road, formations, mentality, et cetera. If they want to switch to a back four, like you say, Sam, which is a good idea. How good do you think of four three two four three one two on the road? You get a plot back four, whoever the heck you want. I think there's good options across the shop. You know, maybe a, a black one at right back just for a little more solidity. A Gutierrez at left back. Take your pick in the middle of the, the back four. You put your midfield three of of Kubas holding it down with Awusu and Kyle slightly in front of him. Gauld in the number 10 role and then Kava and then one of Dahomey and White up front. And then I guess to, to your point, Dahomey, just to, to kind of further illustrate what you're saying, I feel like that kind of solves a lot of the Whitecaps road issues we mentioned. We mentioned them not being good in midfield. Well, you get a midfield three with the ball winner, uh, you know, a number six alongside some progressive passers. You get Gauld. Maybe. I would just add, I would love to see, I, I didn't bring this up when we talked about Kayo, but I would love to see Seb Berhalter and Kyle Alexandre work together That's in the midfield, idea. just because they're both maybe that, for like, Wusu in this case, energizer bunny, but also like ambitious passers, and I just I love that about them. And I think both of the the moment I saw Berhalter play like forty five minutes, I was like, oh, I can't wait to see him and Kyle together. That was something I really thought about early on, and uh, I feel like Berhalter's been underrated this year. I mean, I know it's it's tough when they're getting caved in in the midfield all the time, but as a young guy that they brought in for next to nothing um, and, and, you know, playing alongside Russell Tybert at times where it hasn't gone great. I've been impressed with what I've seen from Burhalter, And I think those two together, especially in this kind of system on the road could, could work. Well, funnily enough, you mentioned that for me, I think if I want to see Burhalter and Kyle on the field with wide threats. So if you're talking wide threats, the white caps are, the day they play a 4 through 3 under Vanny Sartini will be a very strange day. Maybe, because even in the account, I was going to say, maybe they call up a bunch of Caps 2 players, but even then they use wingbacks as well. So, I, I don't, honestly, I'd love to see Kyle and Berhalter in a back three with, like, two speedy wingbacks. Like, I don't, I don't know, maybe Marcus Godinho. He's not exactly speedy, but he does love to get forward or something some of that, like, you know, on one flank. Maybe Ryan Poso on one of the flanks. Like, I feel like it'd be fun to see Ryan Raposo burst up the left and just run on to Kyo and Berhalter switches. So maybe there is an, an idea, but uh, either way, in terms of, yes, the the, the road form, I, I think, yes, with the white caps, you look at some of their problems. 
some sort of switch like that that could put Dahomey in a more, prefer- more preferred role, give them that midfield solidity, maybe give them more of a tight, contained, organized back four. Maybe that's what the doctor ordered. So, hey, Vanny Sartini, you're listening to the show, 4-3-1-2 against FC Dallas. You do it. You win a white cat. You win away. We, we won't say we told you so. We would just say uh, thanks for for uh, for taking the input. But uh, last one for for us in terms of that jokes of that aside, because knowing uh, knowing my luck at least that the Whitecaps do a four three one two, they lose three 0 anyways, and then I look like a certified idiot. But I'll, I'll still hold out hope that as long as they don't play the four three one two, that one nil exists in some alternate reality. One debate that does exist for sure, and it's about to get really real. Cody Cropper, Thomas Assal. On one hand, oh, you got the, the the promising youngster, showed good flashes, was building up a good run of form, hurts his finger. In comes the grizzled vet, someone that you signed almost in a panic after your first few first choice options, you know, such as the the famed Andre Rawls, such as some of some such as CPL keepers who just didn't want to come because uh, the the whole number one situation. Use your Arguably third, maybe lower down the pecking order choice, Cody Cropper, yet he's thrust into the spotlight. Not only does he look competent, he actually looks pretty darn good on occasions. All of a sudden, Thomas Assault, a week or two, or two away, it sounds like, from his return. It was a six-week timeline. He was injured on May 8th. We are now June 16th. Sounds like, you know, people are saying July, you, you know, maybe so within the next two weeks, you'd imagine – what the heck do you do in goal if you're the Vancouver Whitecaps right now? Well, I almost feel like it's becoming uh, a bit of a, it feels like a bit of a running joke at 86 forever where I don't know if it's the same, like three people that just comment on, on Twitter and our articles, but there's some people out there at least that seem to be riding hard for Cody Cropper because whenever I bring up this question or it's, it's kind of debated, well, what do we do? There's some people that really think Cropper should should keep the net when Thomas Assal comes back, and that take was looking pretty good up until uh, up until this match in Seattle. And you know, this is the classic um, classic across all sports, but especially, I mean, you know, we're Canadians, so I think hockey all the time. Like, it's one thing for uh, an Eddie Lack or an Andrew Hammond to come in and like go on a heater when no one is expecting anything of you, right? And you're just kind of you're just there because someone else is hurt and uh, you're playing with house money. It's another thing to shoulder that number one responsibility. And, uh, and that's kind of what I felt like I saw from Cropper where all of a sudden he's coming in with like this swashbuckling confidence. He's coming out to high claim it. He's, you know, barking orders, pointing his finger and, and it looked really good. And then I don't know, you know, maybe Cropper had a bad night's sleep. Maybe it was a bad commute to the, you know, bit bad meal pre-match. I don't know. He didn't look like the same guy. Um, I think a lot of people will point to that fourth goal and go, okay, that's just not an error you can make. I, I totally agree. That being said, to me, the first three goals were just as concerning. The the indecision that led to the penalty, um, you know, a cross at catchable height in the box, into the box on the second goal. It wasn't that far away from him. He got caught in between two minds. It he kind of went out for it, but then he also wasn't really in a position to make a save. You know, just overall throughout the match, even a couple of moments he wasn't scored on, it was like positioning, comfort level aggressiveness in the box just wasn't what we'd seen. And it really stood out because I thought that, as I said, Cropper's 
aggressiveness, his assertiveness, his confidence was something that really stood out to me. Uh, so I think if, uh, if you were content with the status quo up until this point, maybe the Seattle match changed your mind. I, I think we've already talked about it on this podcast. I think, you know, to me, as long as Thomas Asal is fit, the net is his once again, but, uh, yeah, curious for your, your thoughts. Maybe I, we're probably not going to have a, uh, aggressive debate about this. I think we're both on the same page, but maybe we, we got to reach out to those couple Twitter followers who just seem to be riding, riding hard for Cody Crawford. Hey, he's the heart stopper, Cody Crawford. We might have to call him after that. I like, I like that, that one. But uh, for me, I mean, yeah, it's pretty simple. I think I want Thomas Assault to be the starter. I think he's shown enough for me to be the starter. With what what I'll say with Cropper, what again, what's impressing me is the organization. Because even then, yes, for whatever reason, he's been making wild saves. Like I think of that home win against RSL where he saved their bacon many a time with some of his saves. But also it's one of those where it's like, are, is he making those saves because his positioning slightly off? Is he, is he making these saves because he's a bit older and he's slower? Yeah. So it like looks good that he's Sometimes like getting to it a looks shot like more that. Impressive. What was on the broadcast? They said something to the effect of the, one of the saves in the RSL match was the best save they've ever seen a white caps keeper make. And I was kind of like, like, do they not remember really? David Usted, Philadelphia union yeah. or Max Crapo, Atlanta United. And that's just off the top of my head. That was, I, I immediately was expressing my doubt on that one. I think your point about, you know, <laughs> sometimes the saves looking a little more dramatic for other reasons. It's not a bad show. So that's the thing. I think in terms of, you know, Hassal has made fantastic saves as well this year. He's, uh, you know, he's shown great growth in his sweeping, you know, one thing with Hassal is, I don't know if maybe this has been helping or, or, or hurting the Whitecaps ever since Hassal has been out. The Whitecaps barely play short off their goal kicks anymore. It's go up the field and just lump it. And, you know, just little things like that where Cropper maybe isn't the, the distributor for Hassal. So how I put it is I want Hassal to be the guy, but I want more of a push from Cropper, if that makes sense. Like I want Cropper to be around and maybe get one game every four just to keep us all hungry and make him realize like, okay, maybe my shirt isn't a fully guaranteed or, you know, have Cropper there and just, you know, again, just be ready to disrupt the rhythm and throw in Cropper for two games, for example, or throw, basically I want him to use a use Cropper as more of a competitive tool. Cause I think as he's shown when, when Cropper was signed, you were worried that he was going to be okay. This is a well below replacement level goalkeeper. His numbers are bad. At least he's experienced. Okay, he's been solid. Yes, with the Seattle game, he's down to two. He's performing over two goals below his over his expected, or something not good. But also before that Seattle game, he was about even. So he was a replacement level goalkeeper, average goalkeeper. Assume, you know, the Seattle game, maybe he just had an off night, maybe you know, the travel, maybe whatever. We'll 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 be nice to him for this game for now because he's actually he's been solid enough where we'll give him the benefit of doubt for now. Again, the key caveat. If you're assuming he's that average, whatever, you know, it is goalkeeper and, you know, Hassal statistically, they've both been performing similarly statistically. Okay, go with the younger guy, but keep Cropper around to keep him hungry. Hey, third sub listeners, Sam here with a quick word from our friends at Macy's Sports. It's been a while since we did an ad read, so I thought we'd update you on a couple of things available in store. 
First and foremost of those, Darby Magazine, issue number two, out now and available for purchase. Uh, if you like good storytelling about Canadian soccer, uh, it's a great writing, great photography, great overall aesthetic. It's a good publication for you. And uh, stories in there on Atiba Hutchinson, Daniel Henry, Julia Grosso as well. Obviously, gold medal winner, also Vancouver Whitecaps women's alumni. So that's awesome. Uh, but beyond Darby, you've also got um, some fresh offerings from Adidas on the boots front. Um, always apparel, uh, supporters gear, that kind of stuff as well. If you're looking to dive into the summer season with some new kit, or maybe just reading up on a few Canadian soccer stories, Macy's has the stuff for you. So uh, cheers to Macy's as always. Now we'll head back to the show. All right, and we're back after a bit of a short break here. Um, more white caps, I guess, to kind of round off the second half of the show. And then also, of course, the, the big elephant in the room, both in terms of uh, Canada and the, the, the whole Vancouver experience, one bad. And I suppose if you look ahead to 2026 announcement, one good experience as well in Vancouver, along, of course, with uh, Toronto. But obviously a lot of looking back with the Whitecaps. We'll finish our Whitecaps chatter in this show by looking forward and a toughie is on the menu, certainly for the Vancouver Whitecaps. FC Dallas away, unless you think of that famed 4-0 Bernie Abini game, Nico Mesquita bike game. I can't think of too many memorable Whitecaps games away in, in FC Dallas oh, over the years. So second in the West are FC Dallas. They're, despite the Whitecaps lost, uh, you know, they, they, they suffered a few weeks back. Uh, they've, they've still been in decent form. Their players have been in great form, especially those playing for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, but Dallas away, not only that, FC Dallas away, a big chance for the Whitecaps to get road points. But just three days or four days later, the Whitecaps host York United Tuesday, June 22nd, I want to say it is, at BC Place, Canadian Championship semifinal, one game takes all. I mean, Sam, before we dive into FC Dallas uh, specifically, like how, how, how do you balance that, that sort of two-game set if you're, if you're the Whitecaps? Because it's certainly something you have to, to keep an eye on, whether you'd like to or not. I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm being real, realistic here, you see what you do to get a point in Dallas, but you really you put your focus and your energy on York. Like, you need to take care of business. You need to get yourself into a Canadian Championship final. Uh, that's what matters here. Uh, whether you get one point or three or none on the road in Dallas is ultimately secondary. I, I think, you know, you can't be, you can't be looking at this FC Dallas match and thinking that determines the rest of your MLS season. Whereas certainly York United for the Canadian championship obviously is uh, a much bigger, bigger thing. But you know what I wanted to bring up about FC Dallas is looking back on the past fixture the 2-1 win for Vancouver, wow. The Whitecaps, the way they were able to smash and grab against the second-best team in the West currently, um, looking at that lineup, I mean, you had Jake Nerwinski and Javane Brown at center back. Um, <laughs> Russell Tybert and Michael Baldissimo is a two-man pivot in the midfield. Now, what I do like is you had Christian Dahomey in a more advanced position, and that was good. With Dyberg Caicedo, I might add. Lucas Cavallini scores a goal. Brian White gets a goal off the bench. 
a little bit of Pedro Vite flavor in there. And, you know, hey, we talked about Leo. I like Leo a lot more, honestly, as a super sub where he can kind of come in and play with house money. Um, he, he put in a little showing in that match. So, you know, super impressive given who is at center back, given who is in the midfield that they managed to get that result. Maybe a little bit lucky, uh, but obviously that was at home. And we talked about that prototypical road form at home. I, you know, can they find that same thing down in, uh, in, in Big D? I, I don't know. Uh, I think ultimately you have to focus on York more than you focus on FC Dallas. You mentioned, I mean, uh, Paul Ariola, Jesus Ferreira, uh, two guys that are feeling about as confident in, in terms of MLS attackers right now as, as anyone in the business. You know, elsewhere, this FC Dallas team, I'm, I mean, you got Matt Hedges back there defensively. Uh, the goalkeeping has been good and bad, depending on when you ask an FC Dallas supporter. Uh, and that's kind of been the way they've been over the last two matches, uh, losing to Minnesota United, but then they get a big road win against Orlando City. And in that Orlando City match, I mean, you had Paul Ariola, you had Jesus Ferreira making their impact known. Uh, but I do think around the edges of the FCS, this FC Dallas team, there's there's a lot of lesser known names. There's a lot of academy guys uh, that they're getting decent performances out of. But, I, I, you know, I don't think this team's depth is, is so overwhelming that I that you're just going to get dominated. But uh, the Whitecaps do need to obviously uh, put together a pretty, pretty decent effort. Um, if they bring what they brought to Seattle, it's it's not going to go very well. So change in mentality definitely needed but no reason even with a slightly rotated squad that you can't maybe eke a point out of this one especially with some of the guys that are coming back into the fold for vancouver yeah that's the thing with fc dallas i mean they're a bit of a strange one because in the sense they've been doing so well but surprisingly it's been at least i don't know for me it just feels surprising i mean they've always kind of had that foundation but it's mostly been off the back of their defense i mean they're top 10 in expected goal difference in mls but they're not very in terms of expected goals for it's been more the expected goals against that's been carrying them. I think the white caps are just 0.17 XG four away from uh, Dallas per game. That is in terms of a, uh, of a rate, which is semi cavernous, but it's like the, the white caps are closer to, to Dallas than they are to Miami or SKC below them. So it's not gives you an idea of how, uh, how things are in, in that regard. And that's, that's the thing. You just look at this, this Dallas team. I mean, it's really, get it to Ferreira and get it to Ariola in transition, the midfield. I mean, there's solid names, but we kind of saw it against the white caps. They don't necessarily control the midfield at times. It's more just like, you know, yes, they held 58% possession, which to be fair, everyone holds possession against the white caps, but you didn't really look back at that game and think Dallas dominated the midfield, but they're solid at the back. They, uh, they, they get it to their front three. They get the, the, the damage, done and i think for for the white caps will be interesting we talked earlier about their road form maybe this is a good game for them to go out and really try it test out that that midfield solidity we spoke of go with that you know give kubas his first 50 and 60 minute start with an eye of keeping him ready for york maybe you pull him off at, after 55 with an eye on york just to give him that those minutes and give you a bit of that defensive solidity for a guy like leo wusu to do some damage off the bench maybe some ideas for the, the white caps to consider in this, uh, this Dallas clash. Yeah. I, I like the, I like the point you brought up about um, FC Dallas. It's something we talked about when we previewed them before they're, 
they kind of they don't concede a lot but they also don't create a lot outside of the chances that their their elite attacking options are able to take advantage of so uh that might play into the white caps hands this if they're going to try something different on the road if they're going to keep things a little bit tighter defensively really they just key in on those couple of guys up front um you know kind of shadow mark them and and try to keep them in their pockets as much as they can and just let the rest of the game come to them after that um and and just you know be not too ambitious in their mentality just take care of those guys first and and then worry about what you're going to do after that i i think they can be competitive And, and yeah the you know can you then all of a sudden takes those elite attackers out of the game by controlling a little bit more of the ball it doesn't have to be 65 percent uh man city but it you need to have enough to not run your players ragged um not uh lose the pace of the match so uh, i'm looking forward to this one i i think that you know is it's another opportunity for the white caps to to show something a bit different I always find it fun when Vanny has to deal with squad rotation because he, he usually finds some pretty creative solutions. Um, and he obviously values the Canadian championship a ton. That's very, very clear. So, you know, as much as when that starting lineup comes out on Saturday, it'll be interesting not only for the match itself, but for what it means midweek as well. Yeah, ultimately with the FC Dallas game, it's one of those where, it's an MLS away day. You know what you're going to expect. You know how Dallas are going to play. You know it's June and it's Texas and the weather's probably going to be quite awful. You know, high percentage of humidity, work. high percentage of humidity. <laughs> like, bring out your buckets for all the sweat that you're going to get. Like, it's maybe bring some looser fitting jerseys or something along a breathable jersey. Sorry, uh, is the, the term I'm looking for. And that, I think that just kind of sums it up. And I think that's good for the white caps. It's easy to prepare for in the sense that. Yes, the Whitecaps are away form struggles. It's not easy to prepare for any away game, but this isn't some mystery team. Like you're not going away to like a Charlotte like you were a few weeks ago. You're not going away to a team that can hurt you in many ways like a Seattle does or an LAFC. There's an FC Dallas team. You know what they're about. You know what the, the it's like to play in Texas. It's not going to be easy, but you know what's ahead of you. And then in terms of the York game, uh, that pretty much, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because – a few a month ago when it was announced, I was intrigued because I'm like York defensively super solid team. And I think they still are. They have been suffering some injuries uh, at the back, which have hurt them. But all of a sudden now things, things aren't looking great for York. There's just six points off the bottom. They're in seventh. They haven't scored a league goal since like May 6th or something like that. Like it's been a good six weeks without them scoring a league goal. They've been shut out in five or six straight league games. They're struggling in attack, like badly. Uh, defensively, they remain really good. Every game they play is one nil or nil nil. Either they lose one nil or they draw nil nil. Uh, they, now it's now it's this week. Fantastic news for the CPL, by the way, and I guess a bit of a missed opportunity if you're the Whitecaps looking back. Diadine Abzi transferred to a league this side, Pau FC. He will be leaving shortly after the Whitecaps game. So unluckily they do not dodge him, but still that's not going to be any, add any consistency to York's already inconsistent season. They've lost a few players to injury. They've transferred some out. This York team, you know, new coach under Martin Nash. There's a lot going on in York right now. It's not say you're not hitting Ford right now. Who's in hitting their form. You're not hitting a Pacific 
you're not hitting Calvary who's been the hottest team in the league and undefeated in seven or eight. I think it is. You are playing a York team that is struggling in form. You know, they're struggling in terms of what's going on with their lineup. That's a game you have to go win at home and not just win. I think it's a game where you have to, you want a three now. It's not going to be easy. Again, that York defense, I say, do not sleep on them. They've been tight in all the games they play, but if you can get a two, three nil, a confident win, a win where you're not really in doubt, set up that home Canadian championship final, you do it. So any, any sort of preparation for that, that you can help win this Dallas game, you have to consider it. I just have a quick, quick question for you, Alex, as uh, someone who is following the CPL closer than I am this year. Do I see this correctly that they only had five options off the bench against Ottawa? Is that how thin their roster is at the moment? Oh, yeah. I mean, they've had some, some fair bit of injuries. Like some of their – one of their high-profile you know profile signings uh, had to be ruled out for the season with the head injury. They, lost, they brought in Austin Ricci as a replacement. He's out for the year with an ACL injury. Uh, Max Ferrari hasn't played in weeks as he's dealt with injury. They lost Michael Petrasso in like week three, and he's been out for, for a while. Like it's been thin. Uh, so, I, you know, in, in a road game where you don't have the necessary, the capacity to call up some youngsters from around, you know, locally, it leads to a bit of a shortened uh, bench, unfortunately, for, for York. So it just shows how stretched they've been, particularly in attack and also at the back. I mean, they were really starting to figure things out. And then Roger Thompson picked up a bit of a, you know, picked up an injury, a bit of a hamstring issue. Uh, some other knocks and niggles have, have been dogging them. It really hasn't been an easy season for them health-wise. Yeah, I mean, not professing to be someone who follows York United closely, but just looking, you know, Krasnovic and Sa, Dominic Zator, D&D Dabzi, uh, and Giansopoulos and Goal, like that's, those are guys you you can rely on match in, match out for quality defensive de- performances obviously Absi and Saab bring something you know um, a multi-dimensional aspect at the at the fullback position two guys that honestly you know someone like a Vanny Sartini might like to have a look at uh the type of player that he really seems to like uh that's a topic for another day we've discussed that kind of thing already but um yeah it's just further up the roster whether it's depth uh just consistent offensive performances Alex you were saying pre-match or uh, not pre-match, pre-podcast, that, you know, they have all these chances in the box and they just no finishing whatsoever, right? Like no composure in front of goal. Uh, so I wonder, kind of flipping the script a little bit, does that mean that the Whitecaps set up super attacking and just try to break down this strong defensive back line? Or does it mean that the Whitecaps have to be careful because all of a sudden, if they, if they get too cocky and, and one of these York United attackers finds their form, they might leave themselves exposed. Like, how, how do you think Vanny Sartini plays that given, um, you know, the way York United has been playing currently? Obviously, you feel like you should be able to go out attacking and, and break down this back line and, and still stay solid defensively against the CPL team. But uh, as we've seen with the Whitecaps in the past, it's not always that easy. I'd like to see them go gung-ho because, again, on tra- in transition – you think of a guy like Ferrari, his speed looks, he's sounds like he's close to returning, but there's a, even if he returns probably won't be a hundred percent Lowell, Wright, Someone who could really hurt them in transition. He's currently in Honduras with the Canada U twenties. He'll be out for this game. 
guys like Abzi can hurt you with his speed. Yes. But he's a left back. Like unless they go, you know, all surprise and deployment, a winger. Cause usually they've been deploying Sebastian Gutierrez at left wing and he's more of a slow cut inside, build it up slowly. You look at York's transition options. You look at how they defend. Yeah. Control the middle, try to break down that, that back four, get lots of chances in the final third. I think that's absolutely how the white cap should approach this game. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they actually go out and do it. Uh, but personally, if I'm looking at how York is, their current options, their lineup, that uh, it would make it a no-brainer for, for me for the Whitecaps to go a bit gung-ho and, and really play Gold and Vite together if you have to, to, to really break things down. Like Kyle behind them, like go for it is what I'd say. Okay, very, very quick thing, only because you brought him up. Uh, are we concerned that Pedro Vite didn't make the 18 against Seattle? Yes and no, because I mean, on the weekend, he did play with the second team against Seattle's second team. So it cer- certainly shows that he's, you know, he's alive, he's around, he's playing. I think it's one of those where just you, you got to give him time. I, I, you know, I mean, I, it is concerning the price tag, et cetera. But at the end of the day, he's young. He's a long term piece. He's a number 10. I'm not personally worried. I suppose it is worrying to see someone where you wonder, OK, could the Whitecaps have spent that money elsewhere? When you bring in a number 10, a young number 10, when you already have Ryan Gold, I have to imagine the plan was always going to be long-term anyways. I'm not saying this is the same thing because I, I don't think it is, so I'll, I'll preface it. The, the, I just get briefly some Theo of Bear vibes where it's, oh, he's got to go earn it. He's got he's to show that he can play at the next level. And I just – I think if that carries on – I don't. it's not a problem right now, but I think if that carries on for too long – it becomes a situation where, well, now the player doesn't have confidence because he doesn't have the confidence of his manager. So it's fine for now. I think it's just a, it's a monitor the situation kind of thing. You know, he needs to be getting sub appearances, consistent minutes, at least in that role by the end of the year. Cause if you bring this guy in, um, you know, he's playing in major continental competitions down in South America, um, obviously had the trust of managers there. Uh, and you spent money, as you said, on this guy, you got to find a way to integrate him eventually. So I just, I don't want it to be, I don't want us to be a year and a half from now and still talking about, you know, does Vanny Sartini like Pedro Vite? Should he be getting more minutes? Uh, I hope we can get past that. But yeah, uh, to answer my own question, I'm not concerned well, for, I'm not concerned for now. I just, I, it can't go on for too, too long. I'd say get back to me in August. Cause one thing yeah. I did think of when I saw this, I'm pretty sure it was Mark DeSantos. Maybe it was Vanny Sartini. When Vite was signed, someone said he it was one of those two said he should play with the second team. Oh, that was, yeah, they, they, so, I think even Axel Schuster maybe came out and said that right off the bat. They were very open. So if about they it. were, so if they were saying that off the hop in terms of what Pedro Vite should do, maybe that was an indication that while they knew his quality, they kind of also knew what he needed to do to adapt to that system. So now he's finally getting those minutes with the second team. For now, the plan, like, that's not, you know, say it was some situation where, like, they were like, Vite is going to come in and be a first-team player, and he's in the second team, you're a bit more questioned, or you're questioning things, just because they said that. So, obviously, there was that sort of intention. I say give him some time, figure it out, and then we'll revisit that in, in August is how I'd view it. All right, that's that's a good point, because I do remember that, and I remember people at the time kind of being like, hmm, that seems a bit strange, but obviously – 
they had a plan. They saw these things that Vanny Sartini's seeing and, and, and felt like he needed some work. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a huge deal yet. I just, it's a situation to monitor. Okay, well, speaking of situations to monitor, uh, we were monitoring the Canadian men's national team these past couple of weeks. I mean, we're not going to, we're not going to turn this into a Canadian men's national team third sub. We're not going to, we're not going to go full on, but we obviously have to talk about it a little bit. Uh, I mentioned it off the hop. I mean, we can talk about the matches briefly, I guess, but I think first and foremost, we got to talk about the, the friction between the men's national team players and Canadian soccer the uh, frankly outrageous press conference that followed uh, the the bickering between Kane men's national team supporters, media people uh, of differing perspectives. I mean, you know, we don't have the time to dive into all of it, but just uh, Alex is someone who was in Vancouver and, and got to see the Curacao match. Um, someone who is, you know, involved in all of this, obviously you're relatively prominent in the men's national team space. I mean, what were, just, what were your takeaways um, now looking back on it, you know, a, a couple of days removed at least. Yeah, it was, feels like looking back. I mean, it was brewing. You can't say it wasn't brewing. I mean, there's always been tensions between the players and the CSA. Just off the top of my head, I thought I, I saw a cool art, article. I think it might have been the Sports Center, the Canadian Press, that it was from 2008. It was Julian de Guzman blasting the CSA over conditions. J- just for it to for that to say, like this sort of stuff has been brewing. It's been uh, you know, in the, the the background for a long time. I think just what happened is Canada, Canada's men's national team makes a World Cup. All of a sudden, you have an audience. You had a, a whole nation who knows who these players were. They followed them closely. They saw them make a World Cup. Now they're keeping an eye. And then so when something like this happens, it blows over. Because, for example, there was a, you know, there was a player strike reportedly in 2019 ahead of Canada's monumental win over the U S and they were literally the, in the lead up to that game, there was a strike yet. No one reported about it because no one really cared or covered or followed the team. Canada goes out and wins. It's just a foot now, right? It's, it's nothing of a big deal. So what I'd say for that whole dispute itself, that sort of stuff's been brewing in terms of the tension. I forget who said it, but someone put it th- together really well saying that like uh it might have been even john herdman or someone saying it's just canada this was so soon for canada in the sense that they had they went from a 130th ranked nation to a 30th ranked nation so quick you make a world cup the money that comes along with it the attention the talk of tv deals etc it all just came together so soon and it leads to a situation where the players they obviously had the, the their viewpoint to to you know put out there and it's a very fair one in terms of how is the money going to be allocated what is going on with the tv deals the future of the sport i have no issue whatsoever i fully support the idea that the players put out uh you know and then the but but also on their their end the, the men's players put out their statement very fair again the women's players also accurately called them out on some aspects of the state the statement i also agree with the women's viewpoint of that it was all just a situation of everything just coming together. And for what it's worth, I guess everything seems to have settled down now. I mean, negotiations remain ongoing. The women's team are, have made their input. The men's team have made their input. Uh, I think all of it, how I'd sum it up, it was just unfortunate in the sense that 
a lot of fans were kind of left in the dark in terms of the cancellation, which frustrated a lot. So many fans had fallen in love with this team and maybe they didn't see some of this stuff that we'd been seeing for years behind the scenes all come to a forefront. So how I describe it is just unfortunate in terms of the optics and the timing of how it all came together. Yeah, really, really bad optics for the the casual fan, right? Like, Same. I think anyone who's following the, the game closely, like, knows that CSA has been a mess for a while. Like, none of this is shocking to us, but it's it was shocking and jarring to a lot of people. I think you go, well, Canada's a great team. They made the World Cup. Why is everyone mad? Like, it, it should be a time of celebration. And, okay, like surface level that's true but these these structural things that are wrong don't get better just because the team is better in fact if anything it puts under great strain because um, you can kind of run an organization poorly when you're the uh, you know the 130th team in the world and you're playing Bermuda um, you know in, in lower lower level qualifying matches like you don't have to have great organization great media deals great communications departments you're not fielding hundreds of media inquiries you're fielding two media inquiries before the match so the cracks start to show a lot deeper a lot more prominently when you're put under this kind of pressure and I think it was just you know um, it's like you're you're inflating an old tennis ball with a bunch of cracks in the seams. If you don't put it under that much pressure, it's fine. But once you start to really put it under pressure, it's going to burst open at some point. That was it. It just, everything blew up. Um, you already had the, uh, the Iran match that was creating some, some negative press and, and then you just double down and then you triple down with the press conference that looks combative and insensitive and ill-informed, um, just, you know, uh, where was someone in PR to, uh, give them five minutes of coaching about how to, uh, go about it. I, I, I don't know. To me, that just seems someone in Canadian soccer should have been like, hey, guys, is, is are you sure this is the approach you want to go in with? Because uh, I don't know how someone didn't say something. Yeah, I think it's just I, I tweeted it out. I was just really disappointed that some of the, oh, well, my family cave over on the ferry, stuff like that was going to get pinned on the players. How, oh, this is the players being selfish. How could they do this to loyal supporters. I, I just, I understand that people are going to go there. I just think that's really tough for, as you said, uh, the players who've been, you know, fighting so hard and gave so much to this country to, to get the team to this point um, that have been fighting these kind of battles since Julian de Guzman, well before that, all the way back to the, all the way back to the eighties, right. All the way back to the last world cup. And now all of a sudden, uh, you know, people are mad at Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David, calling them selfish um and, and that that's the conclusion some people got that's that's disappointing uh especially when things are in such a large spotlight because it's not the full picture uh i think what's really interesting uh from from our perspective the media side is uh how canada soccer seemed to be uh asleep at the wheel in terms of you know i i think the the rights deal with with csb and and some of those business dealings could have been good at a time where Canada soccer really needed some, some positive news and a little bit of cash flow. But I, I think that the, the short sightedness of, um, you know, signing yourself up for something as volatile as um, national team soccer. Like it's one thing I, I saw people bring up the, 
NHL, MLB, those kinds of, oh, well, they signed 10-year rights deals. But it's like, yeah, you, you have a very consistent product there and a consistent package. You know, you know your product's going to improve over time, but you, it's going to be incremental. It's going to be 3 5% kind of growth. Um, what happened to Canada soccer? Uh, you know, you're, you're talking just the Canadian men's national team now is a completely different product than it was two years ago. Right. Um, so, you know, the fact they didn't have someone a little more judicious behind the wheel to, uh, to, to oversee that, to, to be a little more, uh, you know, have the vision to, to protect the organization, protect the, the, the government organization, essentially, that's kind of, you know, uh, defending the public's interest. That's, uh, that's disappointing. And, and also, you know, I have to put a bit of it on the players too, like even in the statement they put out to, to kind of act as unaware of these dealings as they were, it's like, well, you know, you guys are players for the Canadian men's national team. You should, if you're not informed on this kind of stuff, you should at least have someone in your ear telling you what's going on, what you need to be aware of. And that was the other thing you brought up the, the men's and women's teams and the, the conflicting statements. Like, did someone not get on the phone there? Like, okay, so I know I know Jordan Hoytema and Alfonso Davies aren't together anymore, so maybe they're not texting each other over it. But, uh, you know, there's got to be friends between those two teams. Did someone not just pick up the phone and be like, hey, can we get on the same page here? Like, the fact that they did that through statements and sort of created some friction between the two programs, like that, it, it feels like this whole thing has been just marred by a lot of miscommunication, uh, most of that, you know, I think the primary load falls on a bloated yet understaffed Canadian soccer organization that uh, can't stay out of their own way, can't stop shooting themselves in the foot. But I also don't think the players and even the women's team, you know, like collectively, uh, Canada soccer as a community didn't do enough to get on the same page here. Uh, I wish there had been a little more discussion um, you know, in a frank and honest public setting and less sort of bickering behind closed doors. Um, and, and it sucks that, you know, Vancouver had to be selfishly as we're both from <laughs> Vancouver, that it had to be at the epicenter of yeah. this. Uh, that was really disappointing when so many Vancouver fans have been waiting so long. Obviously, the whole Vancouver versus Toronto attendance debate. Let's just table that. We, we don't need to talk about it. But that's a whole nother thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Any final thoughts, Alex, before we just maybe briefly touch on the, the two matches that actually happened during this window? Well, you said so much that it's just like, oh, my gosh, where do I where do I go? But I mean, there's a lot of, you know, to unpack with that. And I mean, it's kind of been discussed at length. I mean, you could talk. everyone has said all of this on twitter offline uh, radio shows like it's been well covered but I, you know for the third sub listener who's still listening just to to hear our take i guess on this platform and you know felt like it had to be put out there even if it's nothing that hasn't been said before no for sure and i think it's it's true i mean i think for example of the men's players like you think in the the modern age what i think of is why weren't any of the players maybe taking in advance of this on social media or speaking to the media and kind of, why was it three hours before a game on a Sunday where everything kind of came to light? Could, like, I'm not saying. Fo- couldn't Fonzie have streamed on Twitch? Like he's got a huge like, uh, audience on there. But, that, but that's also the split. Cause when you do it three hours before, like 
the message was sent. Like the message was most definitely sent. So I also have like, I get where it's coming from. So I think ultimately you just look at the sort of situations. Like there's just, there's a lot of sides to it. It all kind of comes together. Even if we're going to talk about the, the CSB and the, the media pro deal, you know, I mean, on one hand, yes, now Canada is, is tied uh, to a deal that maybe was paid below market value for what it's worth today, a few years ago. But also, a Canada got a bunch of cash off that up front that, or, you know, in terms of the deal yearly that they needed, and then they also secured, um, you know, and also MediaPro got access to a prod, uh, you know, a product that they obviously saw value in, and they're pay, certainly reaping the rewards of it now. Like there's, you know, there's all the the sides of that deal, even the, you know, the all of it basically to come together in terms of the strike, in terms of the 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 what the men's team was demanding, in terms of the 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 very, you know, what I hope is achieved in terms of the equal pay debate. Because I thought Janine Becky, her interview with TSN was excellent in what she was saying in terms of, you know, the the men didn't con- consult with us with equal pay. We want equal pay. We like the men's team. We're going to work together on that. Uh, you know, it was just overall <laughs> so lots going on, I think, all culminated into to one big supernova event. And I mean, it was it was surreal, to be honest, to be at the stadium three hours before the Panama game, just kind of sitting there on the sidelines knowing like what the heck's about to happen and then everything that followed. But uh, hopefully things can go into a great place. I think at the end of the day, no matter where you side on the the debate everyone wants canadian soccer to grow men's and women's we have two good teams we have you know two likable teams got a lot of good youngsters coming up we love the sport in this country we want the domestic league men and hopefully soon women's long overdue to grow we want just all facets of the sport to to come together and you know maybe this is the sort of moment you need to to kind of push things forward so at the end of the day i feel like that's what we're all uh, you know all sides are in agreement on that. Hopefully this, uh, you know, can be just a blip because again, like we've said, it's happened far too long, but maybe again, this was maybe the push they needed because Canada does have to exercise. You've had your 2015 women's world cup. You're about to have a men's world cup, which we'll get to finally in, in a few minutes. You, you have all sorts of big events coming. You have marquee players, men's and women's playing at top levels. But if you want to be a soccer nation, there there's things that you have to address. And I think, a whole situation like this camp was a big example of why. I'll just add one thing. Cause like, I can't help myself. The, the one thing I don't understand about the framing of the CSB deal, like even the way you put it is, and Canada soccer seemed to do this too. They presented their organization, like they're like a mom and pop business. And, <laughs> Oh, if, if we don't, you know, if we, if we can't make them enough money this year, like we might have to shut down. We can't keep the store open another year. Is this a pseudo government enterprise? Like they're not going to go under if, if they have a couple years where they lose money. So like, yeah, cash flow is great, but like at the end of the day, the taxpayer, um, the government is going to foot the bill for these things. So I just don't understand the desperation to that level to, sign on to something so long-term. I, if you're a for-profit business and you're struggling and you might have to lay off all your employees, that's one thing to take on a deal like that. I, I just, when you're a government-funded enterprise and you're, you're kind of, you're spending the taxpayer's money, um, you know, to, to sign on to something like this, which, you know, I, I think looked kind of predatory at the time and now obviously it looks way more predatory uh i i didn't understand the urgency there i i still don't so 
Um, I, I think that's something that I'm still a little bit confused by just the way Canada soccer acts like they're going to go out of business or something. I didn't really get that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great point in terms of the overall, especially the whole, like we're a nonprofit uh, when the volunteers and all this stuff, which is just hilarious. I mean, in terms of the TV deal itself, just, I think you gotta that is pick a bit... sides, right? Like, are you are you this nonprofit government Holistic. funded enterprise, or are you a poor little small business that we can't afford to make ends meet? Which one is it? Pick one. Well, for, yeah, exactly. And I mean, for what it's worth, with the TV deal, I think the TV deal is a bit of a unique circumstance in the sense that. There are reports out there suggesting that Canada was paying TSN and Sportsnet before to air games. Whereas, so I could see why if a company comes in with an offer, why it might be attractive for them to, to take the money. But no, it's 100% a great point in terms of the profit. And it's like, you think of it too, like for an organization, because like this is how I'd sum it up. If you, if you think for an organization that's strapped for cash, why was it impossible to buy merch when the women's team was winning gold and the men's team was winning, you know, winning all these world cup qualifier games, you know, et cetera, about tickets and all you could go into all that. Like it's, it's a hundred percent a great point. And it's the arguably the funniest part about this, the whole like, Oh, it's a volunteer. It's nonprofit. I thought that was hilarious. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit of actual soccer here. I mean, so you were at uh, the Alfonso Davies return, Canada versus Curacao pretty uh ah, we talked about way back on our on our OG live shows about how hey you know you gotta watch out for Curacao they're they're sneaky good um you're at the stadium I mean a pretty no nonsense when taking care of business a little less uh complicated than their follow-up match against Honduras but uh yeah any, any thoughts um big picture takeaways from that one for you Alex I mean, not much because, A, for Curacao, I still believe they're a great team. They were missing six regulars due to vaccine requirements and a few others for other reasons. So it's Gotta not watch a full out for that. Home, home pitch advantage for Canada. Uh, you know, same thing applies. MLB, NBA. Um, <laughs> That's you know, a home field advantage. I have no complaints about People myself. are getting <laughs> called out. <laughs> no complaints. But uh, in terms of Curacao, I think it was great to see Alfonso Davies just back in a free role. His danger, seeing what him and Tejon Buchanan can do when they're on, that's one heck of a duo. I think that was cool to see. I think it was good to, to see Canada's back four get another solid performance under their belts, control play in midfield, really use their depth as well to an advantage. The five subs they brought on, it was like Junior Hoylet, it was Sam Piet, it was Lucas Cavallini, it was E.K. Ugbo. Uh, you know, those sorts of guys. I think Mark Anthony K also might have been the fifth. Like, those were good subs to bring on. Lucas Cavallini scoring for Canada. You do love to see it considering the, the form he was in. I think it was just overall a fun game. I mean, in terms of long-term takeaways, it kind of gives you an idea that Canada does now want to play a 4-4-2. They want to play a back four. They want to, you know, keep up their defensive philosophies be a little more hard to play against in midfield, which is fair. You're going to play Belgium. You're going to play Croatia. You're going to play Morocco. It's going to be three tough games. The 4-4-2 makes sense. We have a better idea of what the best 11 was. I think that Curacao game uh, was a lot. It wasn't maybe a lot to take away from it, but it was certainly more to take away from it than uh, the Honduras game, let's just say. Well, yeah, I don't have much to add in terms of Curacao. I mean, pretty, pretty tidy from Canada. What we really come to expect and, uh, and see quite often from Canada these past eight or so months, 
Honduras felt a little bit more like 2017, 2018, uh, you know, CONCACAF voodoo. Uh, my immediate thought, I said to you pre-show, um, I was watching the first 10 minutes just to see if Alfonso Davies, other key guys didn't get injured. The pitch was that bad. I mean, 12 foot passes that were stopping halfway to their target uh, in puddles of water. Uh, obviously, you know, you can question should matches like that be played? We saw the same thing with the U.S. men's national team a couple days later, uh, mud bowl instead of puddles, but, but same, same pretty much. That being said, I mean, Alex, you had some good tweets about it. Like Canada tried to force their system. They didn't really embrace it or adapt in the same way Honduras did. Uh, it felt like the first time actually that Van, I keep wanting to say Vancouver because we're talking about the white cap so much, but <laughs> I mean, you know, Vancouver would probably get out CONCACAF too, but it felt like the first time in a while that Canada got out CONCACAF because throughout the qualification process, they went into places or they even got in the, the handbags, the, the little, you know, side pitch things that really gave them a bit of a psychological advantage. And I don't know. They didn't, they didn't quite take that attitude in this one. I got the sense watching the first 25 minutes of the match that, um, you know, guys like Tejon Buchanan, Alfonso Davies, they were trying to dribble and do things on the ball almost like it was their entitlement to be able to do that. And I think they maybe just had to recognize a little bit sooner, hey, this isn't that kind of match. I've got to scoop it 30 yards downfield and run after it and then take a speculative shot on target. So I just, I don't know. I got a little bit of a sense of Canada didn't want to embrace the conditions. They wanted to sort of fight against them and, and that worked against them in this match. But I think it's, uh, you're not going to have to play on this kind of surface in the World Cup and, and, and maybe a Hope little not. bit of a little bit of adversity, a little bit of uh, keeping these guys hungry is not a bad thing in in the big picture but obviously you know just disappointing that really you got a a dominant kind of non-event match in this window and then something you really can't take anything away from other than a bit of uh, a bit of experience so uh super disappointing window for canada not what you wanted at all but uh yeah your thoughts on honduras i mean what if anything there is to take away like it's a tough one because I mean for this like my main point and the thing is about my main point it might be irrelevant because this also just might be Canada trying to prepare for the World Cup. It was just it was a bit of a theme I've noticed during World Cup qualifiers. Canada we we talk about their their adversity we talk about their battle etc as a group solid together group. No questions about that. I mean, you hear the brotherhood, all etc. Cliche. It's it's true. It's it, it helped them a lot, uh, you know, on their run. But one thing, if you notice from their last three losses, Honduras away, Panama away, Costa Rica away, when things aren't going in their favor, one thing that isn't ideal to see is that it kind of reverts to ISO hero one v one ball, uh, and also like there's this stubbornness to to play a certain way, which again, in this case, I understand you're preparing for a World Cup. I get it. But also after 10 minutes, you should also realize, okay, it's useless. Just hoof the ball uh, up the pitch, you know, play direct. Like that's the sort of adaptability that you might have to face in a World Cup because you don't know what's going to go on in, in, in a game. Maybe it's going to be hot in Qatar and you can't play the way you want to play. Or maybe like something's going to be wrong with the pitch. You never know. 
Uh, so I think for them, that was the bit of the worry to see that because it's just kind of felt like, okay, maybe Canada didn't need to uh, to do that. But otherwise, I mean, again, not much to take away. You hope that no one got injured. Fingers crossed for Kamal Miller, who seems to be the only guy who pick up something from that game. Hopefully nothing serious for him. But I guess it was just a bit worried for this game in the last few that when things maybe haven't gone their way, it's been a little ISO. It's been a little 1v1 and it hasn't necessarily been, okay, let's just stick with it and go after it. But it's not like they can't. I mean, they went down one out the Azteca and played a fantastic game after that. And you go U.S., they went down one nil and they kept at it. So it's not as if they can't handle going down away from home or et cetera. That's why I don't say it's necessarily mentality, but I guess it's maybe in these recent games, teams in CONCACAF are realizing that, okay, if you mess with Canada a bit, you make them not play their game plan. Cause that's the difference. Mexico just kind of did their thing. Mexico was, it was more of an, like an ego thing with, uh, with Mexico, but with these teams they are like, screw it. It's Canada. We're going to mess with their heads and it worked to a certain extent. I, so I think the really good point there that you brought up is like against the U S against Mexico, Canada has that respect where they're, if they go down a goal, um, if, if things aren't going their way, Canada's kind of like, okay, well, you know, U S Mexico, they're good teams. Like fair enough. We just have to, you know, continue to play hard and do our thing. But against Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras in these tough environments, there's this sense, I think, where especially the top guys in Canada are kind of like, well, we're far better than this team. Uh, we'll just, you know, take it by the balls and do it ourselves. And, and they know that they can't do that against the U.S. or Mexico and get away with it. Whereas I think there's maybe still a feeling that, oh, well, we're just good enough on talent against these lower teams that we can we can find a way to get it done no matter what. So I think you're totally right. They take a different attitude to adversity against the top teams. And, and maybe that'll serve them well in the World Cup. Um, you know, because every team there is a top team. So hopefully they stay away from that ISO ball, uh, you know, hero ball at the world cup. I think they will, but that's a, it's good analysis of the differing mentalities they've employed throughout these, uh, these past couple of months. Well, I mean, it's certainly again, yeah, it's something to consider. Cause it's also like, I mean, I get it. You're Alfonso Davies. You want to take on a guy, but also like, look at the state of the pitch. Like it's also like, sometimes you just, it, it's a situation. I mean, it's also fair. So like, I get where they're coming from, but it's just something I noticed. And I think something that, especially long-term in CONCACAF, as soon as you show any weakness in this region or any sign of weakness, it's going to be used against you. So if, if I just think for Canada, if, if teams are looking at the film and realize Jamaica messed with them with that potato pitch, that, that bumpy pitch now that, I mean, Costa Rica was just Costa Rica being solid. The pitch in Costa Rica was actually sublime. Then you look in Panama as well how they kind of scrapped out that win. Now Honduras teams are going to look at Canada and be like, okay, maybe if we bring them to our little, not as good pitch, or we might throw in a little extra mud or something like that, or we'll, we'll double triple team their best wide players and they'll start to, to get messed around with. As soon as you start, start, start showing weakness like that, it'll get to them. But I think Canada, they will realize they will know and hopefully will adjust. But I guess, I suppose it's something to watch long-term because they still have to head to Curacao next year in, in nations league. And if they do well and make the final four, there's going to be some tough games there. You know, who knows what you're going to face. Hopefully, I guess, Mexico and U.S. from a competitive standpoint. But who will the fourth team of that be? Will it be Panama? Will it be Costa Rica? Uh, you, you might have to face them again. And, uh, you, you know, if, if you want to win trophies in CONCACAF, you're going to have to be used to this sorts of uh, shenanigans, behaviors, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. All right. Well, final topic of conversation for the show. News dropping earlier today. 
World Cup bid in 2026, obviously this conglomerate of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, the host cities for that tournament, the new format officially announced, and Vancouver and Toronto are in, Edmonton out. Uh, I, I think if you were following along, along on Twitter, you knew this was coming down the pipeline. Seems like Edmonton wasn't willing to cave into some of the some of the demands and also maybe FIFA, you know, looking at the cities comparatively and, and ultimately deciding that Vancouver and Toronto were the best fits there beyond just being a host. It does sound like uh, Vancouver's not just going to be a French contributor, but um, potentially looking at six games uh, depends on the format, which as you mentioned, pre-show Alex is, has yet to be fully unveiled. So we, we don't know exactly what's happening, but uh I mean, yeah, thoughts on uh, we, we just talked about a, a tough couple weeks for uh, national team football in Vancouver, but looks like in 2026, there's going to be some pretty major sporting events in the Pacific Northwest. Hey, shout out to Seattle to uh, another one of those host cities, which I think could be super fun for supporters in Seattle coming up to Vancouver and vice versa. Uh, yeah, your, your thoughts on uh, the announcement today and, and what it means for you know, soccer in BC and soccer in Canada. And what a comeback for uh, Vancouver, eh? Off from April out of the running to back, not only back in the race, but arguably the city for Canada in this this bid because reports uh, to, to from Sportsnet's Dan Reacher that Vancouver isn't only just going to host a 5-5 five, five game split of the 10 games Canada gets. No, Can- Vancouver is going to get six games per those reports which it just shows fifa wanted vancouver from the beginning at first things didn't work out both sides split apart then maybe it was one of those where they realized they kind of needed each other more than they, they they realized and for vancouver fair play to getting a deal like this to go from no games and watching edmonton get five and toronto get five to coming in last minute and getting six and like for vancouver one thing that was always interesting with them it always felt like when they pulled out, it was more just the FIFA thing. It was the security, the concessions. It was the free reign thing. Vancouver, in terms of the three host cities, are actually in the best position in terms of infrastructure because the stadium was freshly renovated. It's not like Edmonton, where Edmonton was a good size but needed heavy renovations, or Toronto, where Toronto needs expansion and possible reinforcements. So that in terms of stadium, Vancouver hardly needs to be touched. Maybe they find a way to slip in 5,000 seats so it can host a, a quarterfinal because currently it would need, I think it's 5,000 short of, of being able to host a quarterfinal match, which could be something that's done. But other than that, infrastructurally, it was only grass. And in terms of grass, yes, that's a lot of money, but Vancouver's climate, Vancouver, the fact it's a closed door stadium, I'd have to imagine it's probably a little easier for a, Van- a supposed Vancouver grounds crew than it is, say, BMO field in February and the poor things that they have to deal with there. Uh, so I think because of that, plus you look at the fact they've hosted an Olympics, they've hosted a World Cup final, which is something that wasn't talked about enough today, in my opinion, the fact that they hosted a sold out World Cup final seven years ago. That means that hotels, transportation, buses, everything, it's all set up. It's a downtown stadium. Like it's perfect for literally tailor made for an event like this. So for Vancouver, it makes so much sense because now they come in, all they have to do is put in grass, 
put put in a lot maybe they're going to go broke off of the security they need for bc place to ensure that it's going to be a safe event but other than that like it's not like toronto where the location's a bit sus as well i mean bmo field a great field but he needs reinforcements the location's a bit sus hasn't necessarily hosted a, a big event of this scale because they weren't in, in the women's world cup due to the pan am game requirements you look at edmonton and the whole host of things they needed uh, so for Vancouver, ultimately, all this to say, I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's great for the city that they're going to get those six games. And I think it's hopefully now, as we mentioned, the, the big question is what happens with the format? Because it's 48 teams, that's pretty much guaranteed. But there is still debate. Do they go for, I think it's, God, 16 or something like 20 groups of four or something. My math is terribly off. I think it's like 12 groups of four. Uh, and then you do the, the top two from each group and then third place teams like they do in the Euros. Or do you go for um, groups of three, which was the favored and proposed format, 16 groups of three, that means four games a group, uh, and then you go to a round of 32, a round of 16, et cetera. That would make sense because 16 groups, there are 16 venues in this World Cup. You put a group in each venue, every other good venue that's suitable gets extra games from there. Uh, so we could see maybe Vancouver ends up hosting both of Canada's for, uh, games under a format like that. Uh, etc so huge moment for vancouver i think they've really capitalized this some way or another and no questions asked no complaints yeah i mean uh the the potential of that obviously for uh you know local vancouver soccer guys is is very enticing and it seems it's so far away at the moment that it's hard to get at least for me it's hard to get too too excited because I'm just more of a, you know, what's happening next week than thinking three, four years down the road. But in terms of, I mean, I think it, so it's interesting from a, from a national perspective, I think a lot of people in Canada, you sort of think as of Toronto as the main hub, as the, the center, you know, the center of the universe for back of a lack of a better term. Right. But having, you know, living in the UK now, spending a lot of time abroad, when you think of a travel destination, somewhere people internationally want to go, Vancouver is the one that is at the top of the charts, right? I mean, especially, you know, summer weather combination of, of mountains and ocean, uh, just, you know, it looks good in the postcards. Um, it's something that people are really drawn to. I mean, heck, even amongst, amongst the overall bid of 16 cities, I think people that, you know, maybe they've been to New York, maybe they've been to LA, but they haven't been to Vancouver yet. They might be looking at, Hey, we could go visit Seattle. We can go visit Vancouver. That's a really attractive package. Um, especially if, you know, if your country, if your team has matches in that region. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Everything you said about the the venue. I mean, I, I know the feelings on BC place overall as a, as a venue are mixed, um, but it has all the amenities. It is 100% capable. I, I think if anything, like it makes a much better World Cup stadium than it does a day-to-day BC Lions, yep. Vancouver Whitecaps. Like 100%. honestly, it's, it's perfect for the Olympics. It's perfect for the World Cup. It's perfect for Women's World Cup. The problem is you'd rather probably have it sit vacant and have a little soccer-specific stadium uh, for these these local teams to play in. So uh, anyone who says anything about the venue, I think uh, BC Place is like the prototypical global event stadium. So uh, 
yeah, super, super excited about this. It's also a really long time away. I think if Canada is able to make a round of 16 appearance, if they're able to make some noise at this upcoming World Cup, all of a sudden the hype for 2026 goes through the roof. I think it'll be interesting, you know, depending on how Canada goes at this World Cup, uh, the the hype train could be ginormous if they're if they're able to create a little bit of noise. And, uh, you know, hopefully Vancouver and, and Toronto as well are, are part of that in major ways because uh, the more Canada can rattle some cages, make some noise, not only on the pitch, but in terms of they're hosting it's good for the reputation of the game um you know it's good if international players come to vancouver come to toronto and go oh, i could i could see myself playing here at some point that's uh that's really positive for for local domestic leagues so uh you know things are looking up these are these are topics that have been on the back burner for a while and uh and a lot of it's coming to the forefront for canada which is great to see yeah, ultimately, I think it's a, just it's a happy day. I think a needed happy day for soccer in Canada after a bit of the last few weeks. Ultimately, it's nice to imagine that sometime in 2026, there's a potential for a 25-year-old Alfonso Davies to lead out the Canadian men's national team in front of a sold-out Vancouver crowd. Maybe they'll have won three Champions League by then. Maybe wears the armband, etc., the same way that a 31 or 32 year old, I think was at the time, Christine Sinclair let out Canada's women's team in front of a sold out BC place crowd for a round of 16 game back in 2015. There's a lot of people who fell in love with the sport after that. There's a lot of people who fell in love with the sport after the 2007 U20 men's world cup that was here. I was certainly one of my events that really made me love the game. Uh, so I think there will be a whole host of generation of people that will love the possibility of what 2026 can bring to them. And I think ultimately that's the, the big sentiment I get just looking at the, it just sucks. It's not for four years. It's just so exciting. Like this whole world cup in Qatar, I mean, we you could go into the whole host of issues that that's gone about from the changing the date to the stadium issues, to the lack of you know how hard it is for people to go to it the prices flying in from dubai for matches uh the the fact it's in qatar and the way they built the the migrant workers like everything about it like the only maybe thing cool thing i've seen from the qatar is the whole reusable stadiums thing like that's the only thing that's made me kind of go like cool like the only reason i'm like okay it's because canada's going of course you're gonna be excited at seeing the return but this 2026 is gonna feel super good to, to see an event like that come to, to Canada. So I can't wait, can't wait. And it's just good that Canada goes to Qatar. Now they go, they have their fun, they have their house money. Maybe they win a game or two, get that first World Cup goal, uh, have have some fun because it's wild to think, yeah, you're going to get a 25-year-old Alfonso Davies, a 26-year-old Jonathan David. You're going to get all sorts of names we don't know you know, know or hear about. Yeah, you're going to see a 28-year-old Stephanie Stack. You're like, Canada could be a good team as well, which makes it even exciting to uh, to imagine. Well, you brought up that Alfonso Davies image of him, you know, leading Canada out at BC Place and, you know, in a World Cup. And I just think about Alfonso Davies making his professional debut at UBC Thunderbird Stadium for Whitecaps FC2. And just like I was at that match and to be able to look four years down the road and, and see that and think of how far 
the city from a soccer perspective and the country from a soccer perspective and Alfonso Davies will have come in that span uh, is just unbelievably cool. So, you know, four years can't come soon enough in terms of getting to potentially experience that moment. I think that's a very good way to end off the, this very jam-packed show. Obviously, we had a, a lot to talk about. We should try doing this more often. <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, we'll certainly try to, to bring as much as us as we can with uh, between my chaotic work and soccer journeys and, and Sam's uh, UK adventure. And now a proud Haligonian he now is right now. I'm going to keep using the Haligonian because I love the Haligonian term but this sam is going to a halifax wanderers game this weekend which is absolutely awesome i'm super jealous of that we're definitely gonna have to break it down 40 minutes in the next show uh because i learned mostly about the atmosphere really like forget the game we got to break down the beautiful atmosphere so uh between our travels hopefully we can uh, find some time to do more of that but uh, on that note you can find me on Twitter at Alex Gungary, like at BTS Fancy, BTSFancy.com. All of my work on my Twitter. Uh, lots of fun interviews coming up on One Soccer. Uh, so if you want to, to see all that sort of stuff, you can find that all on the Twitter. But uh, pleasure as always, Sam, and I'll throw it to you to end it off. Yeah, you can find me as always at Samuel underscore Robot on Twitter at A6Forever.com. Uh, yeah, I'll be at the Wanderers match this weekend. Uh, Looking to yeah, experience what grassroots, uh, but but also CPL football is like on the other coast. I have to say, already having been in Halifax a couple times, you see banners, you see ads on buses, like the the vibe around the city, especially now that uh, the Mooseheads season is done. It's the Wanderers are the main ticket in town, and and that's cool. To uh, you know, some of these CPL locations. Um, it's mixed. It depends on where you are, right? Like if you're in Toronto, uh, York United's probably not the number one thing on the docket, but um, Halifax is actually a, a pretty big city for this to be the, the prominent team. It, it's cool. I'm super looking forward to it. I've uh, been a closet Wanderers supporter since the start of the CPL. Uh, the stadium looks awesome with the shipping containers and all that. They just gotta maybe get in a little bit more of a permanent structure at some point, but um excited i I will report back no doubt uh but you can find the podcast at the third sub on twitter third sub pod on instagram i'm gonna take some photos i'm gonna post them on the instagram account it's been dormant for far too long so uh we'll get we'll get maybe i'll have to do the same with some of mine yeah you got the third sub third sub guarantee that will happen this weekend so thanks everyone for listening we'll be back again soon hopefully a little sooner than last time but you appreciate we got busy schedules travel going on uh but uh yeah enjoy the matches this weekend and uh 